0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 10. Today we're asking the question, what supports and hinders stopping work for safety? Let's get started. Hey everybody. My name's David Proven, and I'm here with Drew Ray, and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week, and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the work of safety or the safety of work and examine the evidence surrounding it. Drew, what's today's question?
1: David, today we're going to ask. What factors support or hinder a worker to stop work for safety? So this is something that comes up a lot in accident reports. This idea that workers sometimes continue working right through unsafe situations. And so the assumption is that work is safer when workers are able to identify unsafe situations and to stop work rather than ploughing ahead and continuing to work through those unsafe situations. And this is something that comes up in pretty much all schools of safety management. So it's not one of those theory dependent things, Uh, whether we're talking about behavioral safety or safety culture or complex systems. They all think that this capacity to stop unsafe work is important. And it's almost like a last line of defense because this is things have become unsafe and we use the stopping work to avoid continuing into that unsafety. Now, the trouble is that we often talk about this very simply as if it's almost like some sort of moral failing, that the situation of being unsafe is obvious. And so the decision to stop or not stop should be fairly easy. And of course, it is easy in hindsight. If someone got hurt, of course they should have stopped. And of course, we would rather that they had stopped. So we make recommendations like that we need to do things to increase workers' hazard awareness. We need to do things to help workers perceive risk better. And some organisations even go a bit further, and they put in place an organisational process for stopping work, and we sometimes call this the authority to stop work. Usually it has a few different bits. It has a communication from the CEO. It might have lanyards around a worker's neck. Sometimes it has this little laminated signed card saying, you know, you have the right to stop work, or posters on the wall that say things like, you know, if you see something unsafe, stop it. You have the right to stop if work is unsafe. Sometimes we might even put in place recognition and reward programs in order to recognise when people have stopped work, to say, you know, hooray, that's a good thing, reinforce the behaviour, motivate others to do the same thing. It's a way of showing the organisation that safety comes before production and profit.
0: So we could fool ourselves into thinking this is all um, quite a simple process to manage safety in our organisations. We we plan and prepare for work to be done safely. is kind of like step one and Step two, we, we make sure that our workforce can recognise when, when things aren't safe. And step three, we, uh, we empower them to stop work. So the stuff that we haven't planned for is able to be recognised and corrected in the moment. It's almost like this, this three-step plan to, to always be safe. But by now we should, we should be aware that nothing in safety or you know, maybe any, any system involving people is, is that simple. So do you want to tell us about this week's research? Sure.
1: So the paper this week is called, We Can Stop Work But Then Nothing Gets Done factors that support and hinder a workforce to discontinue work for safety. Now, normally we go through both the title and the authors and the journal, and the authors of this paper are gonna sound a little familiar, at least I hope, to our audience. The first author is Dr. David Weber. And the other three authors are Sean McGregor, David Proven, and Andrew Ray. So we're not gonna be exactly impartial in discussing this paper, but at least we have a little bit more insight than usual into how and why the paper was written. So David Weber was one of the very first PhD students to come out of the Safety Science Innovation Lab and after he graduated he went to work with you David specifically in order to conduct this particular investigation. So maybe you'd like to give us a little bit of background on why you thought this would be an interesting and useful study for the company to sponsor?
0: Yeah Drew before I answer your question I I suppose we got to episode 10 before we threw one of our own research papers into the podcast so so maybe it can be something we can do now every 10th episode our, our listeners might um you know get to hear us talk about one of our own research papers and show that we can you know you know maybe we're okay at doing research as well as just commentating um about it but in answer to your question yeah at the time i was i was inside an organization in a in a safety management role and and we were running learning teams and so yes we were running learning teams in 2015. Um, and we're looking at themes across the organization that we were really curious about to improve safety and operational performance. And there was this conversation that kept repeating itself in discussions that we were having about incidents in the organization. And, and the conversation usually went something like this. Why were they doing that? Or why did they do that? Surely the risk should have been obvious to them at the time. Surely they know that safety comes before anything else and they should have been, and they should have stopped for safety. And so why didn't they stop? I suppose with hindsight, everything is always, always clear, but we kept seem to be having this conversation. And as much as we tried to reinforce those messages of, like we said earlier, we, 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 we worked on hazard awareness and we worked on the authority to stop and we worked on, on reinforcing um, and rewarding that behavior. We still seem to be having this, this repeating conversation. So I was just commencing my own PhD research at the time with the lab drew. And I thought, Oh, here's a great opportunity to uh, you know, conduct another workplace-based research project to try to answer this question rather than just keep doing what we were doing.
1: And if I remember correctly, David, the organization had one of those formal authority to stop work programs with a laminated card. And I think you had a bit of a suspicion that there was a lot more stopping of work going on than was being even captured or visible to that formal system.
0: Yeah, look, there was a, a long running formal system around the authority to stop work. You know, signed off by successive um, groups of executive managers, and and it was spoken about, and it was known about in the organisation. It was rarely then discussed as actual events that had occurred. So, like I said, I spent a lot of my career not very uh, curious about what was actually going on, I'm convinced that that what we're doing was the right thing. But as I really started my own research, I started to more and more question that everything that I saw around me, and this just happened to be you know, one of those questions that that came up at the time. and, And I really wanted to understand, you know, what the workforce's experience of the authority to stop work and stopping work was.
1: So in order to capture that workforce experience, the method we settled on for the study was focused groups. Each one of these groups was from a different LPG distribution depot with a range of different jobs associated with that distribution. Uh, no, I probably should just clarify. Um, LPG is just our name for household gas in Australia. So these are groups who are filling up and distributing gas bottles that get connected to houses who aren't typically aren't connected to the network gas, gas supply. Weber tried to keep these focus groups reasonably free of supervisors and managers. The idea being that then the participants could speak freely. It wasn't totally successful. There are some uh, depot managers and supervisors mixed in with these groups. But they're fairly low level employees in the sense that they're not part of the central safety organization or central management of the company. They work very much day to day with each other. So David was able to get the participants to open up and tell some pretty authentic sounding stories about what their work was like.
0: Yes, so Drew, this is, I think this is our first podcast. Correct me if I'm wrong, where we discuss focus groups as a method of data collection. So, a focus group, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with, but it's basically where you try to have a discussion with usually a small group of people. And you also usually have it around a set of guiding questions. And then, what you're trying to do as a researcher is just facilitate a discussion that allows p- participants to build on the ideas of others. The two authors that conducted the field researcher or conducted the focus groups was David Weber and some of our listeners might know David. He's now a HOP consultant within the Southpac HOP lab and Sean McGregor who who works with, with me at Forgeworks. The three questions that they had in the study for these focus groups were question number one, what makes you stop your own work and stop the work of others? Question two, what makes you continue work when you probably should stop? And question three, what are your thoughts on the authority to stop work, which was the organization's program around it? And so the data um, came from a sample. Well, the data came out of 10 focus groups. There was between three and four participants in each group. So a total of 34 participants and 681 minutes of recordings that were then transcribed for analysis. So Drew, what do you views on focus groups as a data collection method?
1: So there's a couple of different reasons focus groups are used. One of them is just that it's a way of boosting up the numbers. It's much easier to get 34 participants as participants in focus groups rather than in one-on-one interviews. Uh, some of that is just logistic. Some of that is people are more willing to be interviewed if they're part of a group rather than sitting in a one-on-one situation. But the other big advantage is if you can do focus groups well, then the interaction between the participants tells you something that you wouldn't get by just interviewing them directly. You can see the way they form a consensus opinion on things. You can see the way they play off each other that what one person says reminds someone else of something. And that sort of searching for agreement in a group process reveals stuff that doesn't necessarily come out in interviews. The disadvantage is that sometimes that consensus seeking process can hide things that individual participants might be willing to tell you if they weren't part of a group. So you definitely get the group picture, you get how the group talks, how the group thinks, how they relate to each other. But possibly you still get this sort of surface consensus representation. You don't necessarily get the divergent opinions you get if you totally interviewed thirty-four people and that weren't couldn't hear what each other was saying.
0: Yeah, I agree, Drew. I mean, sometimes in my experience with focus groups, sometimes they do suffer from the normal things that our listeners would experience in, in team meetings at, at work as well. There's there's people who who are more willing. To, to talk and people who are less willing to talk. There's people who, who are not willing to disagree with, with someone else. There is all of the other social pressures in there around relationships and power and, and, and so on that can make speaking easier for some people and harder for other people. So, you know, I, I think you really have to have a topic that is something that you feel like people can speak about in a group situation. And then it really comes down to also the skill of the facilitator to to manage the conversation.
1: Yeah, I personally find that facilitation skill in focus groups much harder than in interviews. In interviews, there's just one rule, basically, which is shut up. A good interviewer doesn't direct the conversation. They let their participant talk and they hold themselves back from contributing too much in order to create that freedom for other people to give longer answers, to express themselves, to start opening up more. And the trouble is in a focus group, you can't make other people do that. So even if the facilitator is willing to listen, that doesn't mean that the members of the group are going to listen to each other and someone can start speaking only to be drowned out by someone else. And if the interviewer then intervenes to get the first best to hear, then they're taking much more of an intervention role than they'd take just in a normal uh, interview.
0: Yeah, I I agree entirely. And then Drew, so I suppose in um, in this research you end up with 681 minutes of recording and you get that, um, you generally, well, if you're, if you're fortunate to be in a situation where you've got a budget for your project, you get that professionally transcribed into hundreds of pages of, of conversational text. Um, and then you've got to go about making sense of it. So do you want to talk about how we turn focus group and interview transcripts into, into research findings?
1: Yeah, that's a lot of work. And I think that's something that goes on fairly invisible to people who read research papers. And that's unfortunate, I think, for young researchers particularly, is you can see the finished product, but you don't see how how the sausage is made. There are three basic steps that you follow, no matter what sort of methodology you're using. Uh, you basically shatter the data, and then you put those shattered pieces back together like a jigsaw puzzle, and then you grab lots and bits of the detail and feed it back in. So the shattering is basically going through the data and trying to find individual bits that are interesting and atta- we call it coding, but it's basically attaching labels to each of those individual bits. And the putting back together we call finding themes, which is finding bits that look like each other and trying to work out what the patterns are.
0: Yeah, I think our leaders, or our listeners, sorry, who are in um, organizations would be familiar, at least in the present day and age, you do a lot of workshop activities where you all get given post-it notes and part of this you can picture a little bit as um, you end up with, uh, with thousands and thousands of, po- po- of post-it notes that you're trying to cluster into themes. And there's a bit more, so depending on your coding methodology, there's a bit, more, a bit more science to how you're grouping those themes. But if people have in their mind, how do, I, how do I code this stuff? It's not that much different in principle than having a whole heap of post-it notes that you put up on the whiteboard.
1: And, and not necessarily a lot more technology than that either. So if people are picturing, you know, grabbing grabbing all of these interview transcripts and sticking post-it notes over them, that's not a metaphor. That's often how we actually do it. There, there are software tools that work a little bit better if you're familiar with using them. But I actually make all of my junior researchers do it the post-it note way first. Just so they like physically understand what it is that they're doing when they use the software.
0: Yeah, I think, Drew, um, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, I've sorted of done two Two different types of qualitative analysis on on this type of data, and uh, and one I came at with a set of predetermined categories and themes that I went searching the data for information that fell into that bucket. So th- th- that's sort of one way of coming at it. You can have a theory or a framework that you're trying to get data to explore and understand, and you you look for data points that fit into the predetermined buckets that you're looking to fill up or you come at it the other way, which is the way this study came at it, which is a process called grounded theory, where you do start with a blank piece of paper and you actually inductively create the, um, your own theory based on how the pieces come back together.
1: What makes it rigorous is something that's often invisible to the people that's re- that are reading it. It's how willing you are to initially find patterns and then reject those patterns because your data doesn't fit. So, doing it poorly, you'll begin to see patterns and you just make everything fit those patterns. Doing it well, we'll go through many, many different attempts to fit patterns to the data and give up because there's bits of data that just don't match the pattern. One thing I've actually gotten the habit of is just taking photos of my whiteboard and keeping all of the photos. And you can see over time the way sort of initial ideas just don't fit the data.
0: And just so people have a sense for this paper, and then we'll move on to the findings. And I know. Um... David Weber will will remember this well. I think it was about a year from the time of finishing the the last focus group through to having a a version of the paper to submit in terms of like the analysis. And that was a full-time research activity in terms of just coding and recoding and coding and recoding to um be confident that the data have been fairly represented in the in the findings. So, Drew, the paper makes fine or I suppose has findings in four categories. Those four categories are, number one, reasons to stop. So these are like, what are, the, what are the triggers to consider stopping? The second is the factors that support stopping. The third is the factors that hinder stopping. And the fourth is the ways that people go about stopping. So, so these are the four um, categories of findings. Do you want to talk about the first one, reasons to, reasons to stop?
1: Just before I go right into that first category, I'll explain that, What we essentially have here is an underlying model or assumption about how stopping work works. And the idea is that there's got to be something that triggers you to begin to think that stopping might be a good idea. And then there's an intermediate fugue state where you might stop or you might not stop, depending on what the factors are that are going to encourage you towards stopping or encouraging you away from stopping. And then eventually there's gotta be some sort of action that you take. And that's what creates these four categories. So the first one is what, what even put it into your mind in the first place that you should consider stopping? And this is the one place in the study where rules and compliance get a solid mention. And this surprised us because we, we were sort of figuring that rules wouldn't play a big role, but there were some hard and fast rules, things like scaffolding inspection tags and gas fitting compliance plates. And when those things were missing, that immediately, and as far as we can tell, always triggered a discussion about stopping work. There were some other things that are a bit vaguer, things like uh, weather, time pressure. Sometimes it was just a vague feeling of things not being right would trigger this initial discussion. And then the interesting thing is, okay, given that initial feeling, there are things that are very much about the situation in the organization that can make that feeling go away again or that can lead the person more and more likely to stop. So another thing that, I guess, surprised us was that the formal authority to stop work process, certainly the workers thought that that was something that helped them make a decision to stop. No one actually followed the process, but this idea that they had that management would back them up was really important, and having that formal process reinforced the idea that management would back them up. Although a couple of the workers said that You're sure I've got this signed piece of paper, but I don't know that guy. And because I don't know him, I don't know whether to trust the piece of paper. So in fact, the relationship with immediate supervisors was much more important.
0: Yeah, I found this quite interesting and surprising at the time, do I remember? Because I think where the safety practitioner or professional sits, they've got fairly... Fairly good access to management and senior management in the organisation, and and they tend to know who senior management are, and they understand who's who on the organisation chart. And so, messages that come from the CEO mean a lot, and and maybe do go some way to shaping behaviour of people in roles. But when when we got down to the frontline workforce or out to the frontline workforce in this in this study, it was really clear that the message, what what happens around the senior management table really doesn't shape behaviour in the frontline workforce very much at all and it really doesn't offer any support or enablement for how how people are going to make decisions or act. You know, People would say things like like you said that they don't know that person and even if they did know them there's nothing that that senior manager could do to protect that worker from the, the response of their immediate supervisor. It was their supervisor that was going to make life easy or, or difficult for them in relation to a decision like this and that's really all they cared about um, in terms of kind of work relationships. Their co-workers and their their immediate supervisor and everyone else was kind of like a distant a distant second in their consideration.
1: And this next bit seems obvious, and I know people say it a lot, but we all forget it. What matters with those immediate supervisors and the coworkers is not what they say they'll do, but what they'll they actually do. So really the way they reacted last time is what matters, not the fact that they've said that it's okay to stop. Or said that they'll support stopping or told people, you know, stop, and I'll back you up. What really matters is what were the first words out of the supervisor's mouth last time the worker wanted to stop? And that immediate reaction, that reaction that invites serious consideration, that invites discussion, that doesn't push the responsibility back onto the worker, that you know, shows that unconditional support is what matters. No one wants to have to justify to someone else why they stopped, that need to justify to justify is a sort of requirement of energy that's going to act as a barrier. So having an invitation rather than a need to justify. you' having someone else who you know agrees with you that the situation is dangerous makes it much, much easier to stop.
0: Yeah, and other things that that hinder stopping, so so working alone also you know hinders stopping. Um, and maybe that comes down to not having any 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 support around or or knowing that you've got to reach out to someone and then have to explain explain your situation and then having to actively stop someone else in order to stop themselves made things particularly hard so in the teammate setting one of the things that was interesting is even though once you've made the decision to stop having the support is really good working in a work group if you're going to be the one who first raises the alarm or first raises an issue and you're looking around and everyone else seems to still be working quite merrily and happily and and feeling safe it's it's quite hard to make that first conversation so that's that's a really interesting dynamic getting that first conversation started and then once that first conversation happens then you're in a much more supportive environment to um, to make the decision
1: and, and that's where the direct relationships really matter because working amongst teammates and having to be the first one is hard working amongst non-teammates if you're a contractor or if they're a contractor or if there are two companies working together makes it super hard because it makes it a more formal type of thing to ask them to stop Whereas asking people that you're very familiar with to stop doesn't need to even be an expressed verbal request. It can just be, you know, a glance or a shrug of the shoulders. Or
0: great point, Drew. If you're in a mixed workforce with contractors and clients, and you know, for your contractors to stop, they have to also stop the clients' work. That could be a potentially very, very difficult situation if you're if you don't understand that really well and find ways to enable and support that really well. Which we'll talk a little bit about the at the end. So, and on the topic of justification. True. We said that participants were really fearful of having to explain why they top why they stopped, and and sometimes if they knew that they would have had to explain themselves, they were going to be inclined to try to work away through a situation unless it was totally impossible or totally in contravention of a rule or something that was very obvious. And I'll give I'll give people an example of the context around this research just so that they can think about what it might mean in their organisations. So these these gas delivery drivers they got all their scheduling information from a call center and it was that call center who was in contact with the customers so they'd work out what needed to be done they'd schedule it and the drivers would then go and do the work so if a delivery didn't happen for some reason because the the driver or the delivery driver didn't feel it was safe then they knew that they were going to have to explain themselves back to someone at a call center over the phone and then that course, they knew that that call center person was then going to have to explain the situation to a customer and why they had no gas for their stove or their hot water for another day or two days or, or three days. So understanding this chain of communication um, and the pressure that it, was, that it created was really important for us um, in understanding decision making about stopping work. And so if I can go on to another example you know, about how to break that chain, and I think this is very familiar now for, for deliveries in general that um, originally this type of a business would have had a, had a situation that said something like, if there's a dangerous looking dog, don't go onto the premises to do the work. And then yeah, we had in this business, something like 30 or 40 dog bites every single year around that particular judgment, it's Cause it's like, well, is it dangerous? The person delivered it last time, they didn't get bitten, everything seems fine. So this is when we cycle back around to the rule at the start, Drew, where, Once there was a rule in place that said, if there's an unrestrained job, dog, you don't have to deliver, then you're straight away enabling that decision to be made. There's no justification required. The customer can be notified with a very clear message that we told you to have your house in this situation and it's not. So I just wanted to tie that story together, um, Drew, because it kind of goes to the complexity and the pressures of what happens when a decision gets made. And then some of these other things about how these factors can help, can actually break down some of those pressures.
1: Yeah, I like that story because it casts rules into a very different light than I think we've talked about rules before. When we've talked about rules as something that can be broken and why workers might break or not break rules. In this situation, the rule is something that's actually acting as a tool that the worker can use. Um, they're using something which is appears, it's written like it's a rule for them. You are not allowed to go into a house where there is a unrestrained dog. But it's a useful thing for them to have. It helps them explain what they're doing. It helps them communicate with the call centre. So that rule doesn't restrain the worker. That rule gives them more capacity to stop work if they need
0: to. Yeah, and it's like rules is enabling resources. I, I like that, and it came up a bit in this study as well with uh, fatigue and and driving hours, because these, these people are professional drivers, so say they can't drive for more than 14 hours or 12 hours in a day, if doing the next delivery or the next two deliveries was going to take them over that time limit, they didn't have to have a conversation that was like, I feel a little bit tired, I think I might go home for the day after 10 hours. It was very clear that, no, I can't work past this time, so you don't have to have this debate about whether someone someone's risk assessment is the same as your risk assessment, And so this, I I like the way you mentioned that, Drew, because, um, you know, we've talked a bit about how processes and goals can be more useful in in adapting work than fixed rules. But in this context, if you're having to come to a consensus, rules can be helpful resources to arrive at a consensus without having to have a long risk-based conversation.
1: So this is probably a good point to move on to things that hinder stopping, because not surprisingly, one of the things on the list is the exact opposite. If it's a situation that's ambiguous where the worker feels that the situation is unsafe, but they can't point to some sort of clear safety rule that isn't being met, then that's when they're worried about stopping. They're afraid that if they stop, they'll be seen as being lazy or incompetent or unproductive instead of being safe because they can't point to that safety rule. Another thing that mattered was uh, similar to normalisation of deviance. So if other people have already done the job at least once under these same conditions, or even if the worker themselves has done the job in these conditions before or in similar conditions, then that becomes the new normal and it's much harder to say no the next time. And overwork and fatigue tend to make that even harder. It's like you need energy to stop. And when you're tired and exhausted, it's mentally easier to keep going than to change course.
0: Yeah, and we can... We're just about to talk about ways of stopping now, but just when you, when you mentioned that about overwork and fatigue and tired and exhausted, in most circumstances, when people stop, it creates more work for them, not less work. Uh, the work still needs to be done either at a later time that day or, by, or, or pushed into a stacked schedule for the next day. So often when they're really tired and they may be, may be feeling unsafe, they're also worried about you know, how they're going to feel the next day when they have to get back and get the job done.
1: So in fact, the workers specifically said that one of the things that makes it hard to stop is that they've stopped a task once, but then they just get reassigned that same task through the scheduling system. And so the first time they say no, and the job just appears back the next day. And they say no, and the job appears back the next day. And after being told to do it multiple times, eventually they're just going to do it.
0: Yeah. They're going to feel like they're not supported by the organisation. So they're going to stop putting their hand up because nothing's nothing's going to happen. So the final category about ways of stopping was, was really interesting. And it, it was almost like people never just stop. So it's not like, oh, stop. I'll go sit in my car for four hours or I'll drive back to the depot and, and I'll go home. The way that they spoke about ways of stopping, it was all about adaptation, not stopping. So it was always about delaying, reassigning, go and consult with someone to, to work out if we can change the process, get something fixed, come back later in the day. There was always a, there was always a moving forward action. There wasn't a, a, just a passive, we're going to stop and throw our hands up in the air and not do something. So there was, there was always this, 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 this manoeuvring and adaptation going on in terms of stopping. So workers, workers probably wouldn't see it as, as stopping work. They just saw it as continually adjusting their work around their circumstances.
1: So I don't know if this is a contradiction of David's work or a continuation of it, but we've since had further work going on, particularly field work by Joop Havinger, where he noticed that those things that Weber's study described as ways of stopping work, so delaying the work or reassigning it to someone else or getting some sort of consultation or advice before you continue or get things fixed before you continue, All of those things don't have to be labeled as stopping work. And in fact, they can be such a normal part of work that no one even thinks of it as stopping. They just think of it as just day-to-day adjustment that happens constantly. So if you sort of take that view, then stopping unsafe work almost becomes one of these hindsight counterfactual things like human error. They don't exist until something bad has happened and we go back and we reinterpret it as if it was some sort of deliberate high-stakes decision instead of just one of a thousand daily minor adjustments that keep work safe and productive.
0: Oh, when you reflect on it, Drew, it seems it's one of those things that seems kind of obvious, and that's some of the, sometimes the case with ethnographic research. People play you back their reality, and you go, huh, yeah, I never thought of it like that, but that makes lots of sense. And it's kind of just like, if I've got to walk down the street and cross the road and there's no light, so I can walk down the street and cross the road. But if, it's, if a car's coming, I'll stop, I'll wait 30 seconds, and then I'll cross the road. If the car's not there, I'll just walk straight across the road. It's, that, just that, it's just normal. And you might say, oh, you stopped work, you stopped walking when that car was coming, and then you continued when it was gone. And I think if we think about stopping as just the normal adaptation of work and we find ways, I think then we're in a position where what we're trying to do is just find ways to enable people to adapt.
1: Yeah, the, the example that springs to mind for me is the way we always blame people for entering dangerous floodwater, you know, wh- why did they drive their car into that water? Why did they not just stop? And you, the, the answer is clearly, well, no one ever just stops. They're trying to get home. <laughs> and so there's you know, a thousand adjustments that different people have made. You know, Some people decided to leave work a bit early because it was raining. Some people decided to stay back because it was raining. Some people decided to go a slightly different route because it was raining. Some people who decided to wait and see if it got better and other people pushed ahead. And when you see all of these little adjustments, it becomes really weird to focus on just that one person who didn't make the adjustment or made the adjustment in a different way.
0: Yeah, so let's turn it into practice now, now, Drew. And I suppose as we as we kick off following that last conversation, even though the workers thought that having an authority to stop work, you know, signed off by the managing director was in some way some kind of comfort, even though it was a process they never followed, you know, this may be one of those things where the authority to stop work process is like this imagined view of how work gets done and we actually might need to have a whole different set of language and constructs behind how we think about about it because we, we're we sprouting out to the workforce the authority to stop work and they're like, what? I don't understand. And maybe we need different ways of relating it to the workforce. So so David concluded that having an authority to stop work policy alone will not necessarily help your workers to stop. and this is because discontinuing their work doesn't solely rely on their willingness to stop so he described this need to create a stop work environment which is kind of like a set of conditions that enable people to stop or or adjust their work and he listed these under four categories social the technical or physical conditions the procedural conditions and then the non technical or personal conditions and there's there's quite a big table in, in the research paper, Drew, that just talks about all these different types of conditions, but maybe we can talk about a few under, under each of those four categories that our listeners can maybe take away and think about.
1: So one of the ones that I want to jump off with is the idea that being part of a team is a big facilitator of the ability to stop or adjust unsafe work. And we spoke about this in our episode on the relationship between trust and safety, It's that ability to know that you can be the first person to speak up and other people are going to support you rather than disagree with you or make you justify yourself. And I think often we don't think about things like supporting teamwork as part of the safety job or we just lump it in with a whole grab bag of soft skills and we say, yeah, soft skills are important. Now let me get on to my main job. Whereas here it's really central, that teamwork and communication.
0: Yeah, and I think alongside that, providing yeah an absolute certainty about the absence of negative consequences and and like we said earlier that's not just saying that there's going to be no punishment for stopping work yeah it needs to it needs to involve open discussion about these issues when someone adjusts work when they stop work when they don't stop work how how do you facilitate a conversation in your organisation where you openly discuss those issues you 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 help local management be able to have these conversations with their workforce so that they can they can openly discuss these things they can understand that uh, people have different views on what's safe and what's unsafe and create an environment where teams respect the different views of people so that if someone does want to put their hand up first then they know that that's going to just involve a they're going to be supported it's, they're going to have a discussion about it at some point in time they're going to get the benefit of other people's views and perspectives and they're going to be respected and listened to around their own views and their own decisions
1: so one thing that really struck me was that you could have a thousand times when someone Needs to stop or adjust work and their supervisor supports them. But you only need once, and it doesn't even have to be real to have someone punished or made to keep doing something that's unsafe. And that will spread through the organization as just this vicious, dark narrative that you know our management doesn't really want us to stop. And so one of David's suggestions, which hasn't been strongly tested, but I do think we should think about is deliberately amplifying some of those day-to-day stories about how people are allowed to stop and adjust work and make it very clear that that's the normal to counteract the power of the stories that go the other way.
0: Yeah, we know in safety that um, well we know in life that you know, bad news travels ten times faster or a hundred times faster than good news, and then we know in safety in organisations that we in you just have to do a little bit of qualitative climate type of research or just have any really frontline discussion to find out that someone was punished for something 10 years ago and the whole workforce still believes that that's the way the organisation's being run. So, so it really is a, you know, one step forward, 100 steps backwards if you make a mistake.
1: And that doesn't mean we need to give like gold stars and gift certificates to people who stop work. It just means we need to have opportunities for people to talk about times that they've stopped work with each other and what happened. And, Particularly with new employees, get them to realise that you know this, this is normal, this is encouraged. Yeah. This is what happens. If you need to stop work, it's no big deal
0: at all. So on the on the technical side, there's there were some quite specific recommendations because of the industry-based nature of this of this of the where this research was done. But there's this, this idea of needing to provide people with sufficient variety and redundancy of equipment and resources to enable them to deal with the varied situations that they face. So you, know, you do want you to you support your people to be able to adjust their work in ways that are safe. And if a worker's say, for example, there's a really critical piece of equipment that they use on every single job and they've only got one of them in the truck and then it breaks and they're facing a situation of having to drive half an hour, an hour back to a depot, get a replacement, drive half an hour, an hour back to a depot, they're on their last delivery of the day, they've got a different tool that's close enough. You're, you're just creating a situation where you're, you're creating a difficult decision for them and you don't know which way that decision is always going to go based on all the other pressures in the organization. So I like the way that David talked about just thinking about redundancy and variety of equipment, thinking about the situations that people might face and giving them resources to be able to adapt quickly because we know that sacrifice judgments, which an, an adjustment or a, a stopping of work is a sacrifice judgment. We know that smaller sacrifice judgments are much easier than bigger ones.
1: And so this next one is related. If you can't, I mean, obviously you can't provide every worker with every possible tool. And so sometimes you'll have specialised equipment for specialised things, but having flexible approaches to the planning of work can avoid putting people into difficult situations. So one of the simple ones that appeared in this study was different sizes of trucks, where if the work was planned correctly, then the right size truck would turn up to the right situation, no drama. If the truck is too big, that's when the worker needs to make this judgment. Do I press ahead? Do I walk further from the truck? Do I try to put the truck into a difficult spot? Or do I refuse to deliver today until someone can come along with a smaller truck? And so having planning pathways for work to be reorganized and to be planned out to avoid these sorts of things uh, can create... Stop workers needing to make the stop or not stop decision. Instead, it just becomes a replanned decision.
0: And one of the other difficulties about planning for work, and this is probably if we've got any kind of supply chain and logistics listeners, this this is not meant to cause any kind of offence, but a lot of the scheduling systems around work, particularly in these sort of um, environments now, um, are quite rigid. So having the option for drivers to say, these are your 10 deliveries to do over the next two days, and the driver or has, has a whole lot of local information about, about which sites are wet and difficult early in the morning, which sites aren't, aren't good in the afternoon. And, and, you know, if they have a problem one day, they know that they can just substitute the next day's job in that afternoon and then they can put the other one off till the next day. You know, most of our systems now, most of our efforts in organizations are pushing work to be far more rigidly planned, far more time bound, far more sequenced. And that can really make it hard for people to say, I want to do job number D before number B, and I want to do tomorrow's work today and today's work tomorrow. But actually thinking about how much rigidity and how much flexibility you've got in your planning and scheduling of work is really important for enabling people to to adapt to the situation they faced.
1: And then the final category was the non-technical things that we equip people with. And in this study, it was particularly helping people deal with challenging social interactions. So often stopping work required people to deal with customers or with the call centres or with the planners. And that needing to explain themselves and justify was much harder when they didn't have a clear script to follow. So in the cases where they could easily say, you know, the compliance rule says this, I'm sorry, I'm not allowed to continue the work without a compliance plate. I don't have a choice. I have to go away. They knew clearly what language to use, what to say. But in situations where they weren't equipped with that, Having to make it up on the fly, they're dealing with really difficult interpersonal situations.
0: And finally, on on this side, Drew David mentioned the need to just continually learn and understand the workforce's views around these. And it's not just—it's a bit like um, both sides of the coin we talk about in safety too: successful work as well as surprising work. And and here he actually talked about the need to explore reasons for for when workers continue work when other people or or their management think that they should have stopped and and so to understand why people are continuing their work in situations that that maybe others feel that they shouldn't have and also why people stopped in situations when other other people thought it was fine to go ahead does two things you you build the capacity in you build a greater capacity in uh, your workforce to make decisions around adjusting their work and stopping their work you also help individuals understand that it's fine to think differently from other people. And there's a supportive environment where people can, you know, raise different opinions. So that's it for today, Drew, but we've now got 10 episodes under our belt and we got a chance to talk about some of our own research, which made the preparation a little bit less arduous, at least um, at my end. We hope um, you, our listeners are getting value out of listening each week. And if you are, we'd we'd appreciate if you could share this podcast with a colleague, leave us a rating on whatever feed you're listening to this through. There's no downside in our opinion to more people being able to, you know, Practice safety based on the evidence. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com.